Good morning, City Gates. Good morning, Good morning Ryan. Um, I'm, oh, yeah, the red thing is there, so I'm live. Hey, City Gates online as well. Um, good morning. I hope you're well this morning. Um, it's so good to see you. We are going to be looking at Ezra Nehemiah uh, this morning. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with sort of uh, the series that we've been in, we've basically been doing one, well, I'm doing two books in a Whoa. sermon this morning, Whoa. but one whole book of the Old Testament, essentially, uh, from Genesis. We're right here in Ezra Nehemiah. We're right at the end of sort of the historical story of Israel. Um, and so we're going to be exploring that together. I'm just going to set my stopwatch so I have an idea of where I am time-wise, because um, that's important. Um, yeah, I, I don't know about you. Let me, let me ask you a question. Uh, did you have a favorite teacher in school growing up? Maybe you had a least favorite teacher. Um, I had, uh, sometimes the least favorite ones are easy to remember, you know. Um, I, had a, I had a teacher who, I don't know if she was my favorite teacher, but I had her two years in a row. I really liked her. She really encouraged me. And, um, but I had a problem in her class. My problem in her class was that I really liked talking to the other kids in the class. Um, and so she used to, she, instead of doing my homework, and so she had uh, this thing she used to say to me, she'd say, she'd say, Ryan, she'd snap her fingers, get at me, she'd be like, focus, focus. Uh, to this day, I like have her in my mind, like thinking about that. Um, and, and that focus is really important. Um, I don't know about you, it's really easy to be distracted in our day and age. We live in what people call an attention economy. And um, so, I mean, our screens are constantly uh, crying for our attention. And, uh, and that, if, when we're not focused, when we're not devoted to something, when we're not, we're not giving ourselves to our tasks, we, we often become inconsistent. Um, and inconsistency is uh, probably a more normal everyday language way of describing what often the Bible describes as unfaithfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and and faithfulness often comes from focus. And so when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, we're, we're sort of coming to uh, a part of the Bible where there's been this long story um, of inconsistency, of unfaithfulness, of lack of focus on God, and spreading out all of the people's attention and worship and devotion to all sorts of things that aren't God. Um, and that has res- basically wound them up in exile. Now, when we get to uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, um, there's been a long story. I'm just going to do a really, really 30-second recap of the entire Old Testament right now. Um, Old Testament opens. God creates the world. Um, he intends it for it to be a, an amazing place where heaven and earth overlap, just like Toby so uh, greatly explained last Sunday. Um, 
human beings break the relationship with God. Uh, we decide we want to do things our way instead of God's way. So that winds up in us getting exiled from his presence and close harmonious relationship with him. God decides he's going to fix this. He decides to start with one family, but all the families of the earth, this guy named Abraham. That guy's family has a very long, intense story. They wind up in the place called Egypt. I'm sure you've heard of the pyramids. Um, there's a, a ruler there who treats them horribly. So God has to come rescue them. He does that, pulls them through the desert to a land he's promised to give them where they can live, connect with him in harmony and show exactly what that's supposed to look like to the rest of the nations. It doesn't go well. Um, they, they completely blow it. Um, they completely screw it up. God judges them. Similar to the garden story, they get exiled. They get thrown out. In, instead of going south to Egypt, they go north this time to what's modern-day Iraq or Iran. And uh, they stay there for 70 years. And then we have this, uh, and before they come back, that's actually pretty good. That was like two minutes. Okay. Um, uh, maybe not 30 seconds, two minutes. But when, when they come back, there's been this prophet. His name's Isaiah. And Isaiah, a long, long, long time ago, has, uh, you don't have to turn there, but he, um, he basically, he predicts that there's going to be a king who's going to rule in Babylon. He's, he's actually not going to be Babylonian. He's going to be Persian king. He's going he's gonna to destroy Babylon. He's going to take over the country. And he's going to actually send all of the people back. He's going to basically do what Pharaoh didn't do. He's actually going to comply with what uh, God wants. And he, he's not even going to know or acknowledge or worship Yahweh, but he's actually going to do exactly what Yahweh wants. And Isaiah says this. He says, um, this is what Yahweh says in Isaiah 44. He says, who says of Cyrus? He named Cyrus like hundreds of years before the guy even exists. Isaiah says, Cyrus, he's my shepherd. He'll fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And so it's the fulfillment of that prophecy, actually, that we bump into when we read the very beginning of Ezra, Ezra 1. So if you want to turn there, I'm just going to be bumping along uh, sort of through the two books. Originally, they're one book, which is why we're tackling them in one sermon this morning. Um, so I'm going to be skipping along. I'm going to try to make my references so you can sort of jump ahead as I jump ahead. So hopefully if, if it feels like you're getting lost, just pull back a second and just wait to the next sort of story move and hopefully you can catch up again. So we get to Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be by the mouth of Jeremiah, it's another prophet, might be fulfilled. The Lord, Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, exactly like Isaiah said, said he would. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, that's a temple, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So he basically says, look, I'm actually going to send you back to rebuild your temple. I'm going to financially sort of foot the bill for the whole thing. And anybody who wants to go can go, which is 
pretty much the best news ever if you've been completely exiled from your home country. And yeah, there's people who, I mean, your ancestors lived there for generations. Other people are living there. And the king, who's he's basically an emperor. He's, his empire extends basically from um, like modern Istanbul all the way till about uh, like the uh, like India, modern day India. That's how big the Persian empire is. It's ginormous. He's basically an emperor, most powerful guy. And he's like, you go home, I'll foot the bill. And so the people do. There's this guy named Zerubbabel. We find out, say that a few, few times. <laughs> uh, Zerubbabel, he, he, he's a descendant of he's, he's King David, who's a really important character in the story if you've been following along. And him and this other guy named Joshua, who's the high priest, they lead about 45,000 Jews back to go to Israel. And they're going to rebuild this whole temple, this whole, whole situation. They get there. Um, things look great. Uh, they lay the foundation. And in chapter three, uh, we find out this kind of this really intense moment. Um, they sing responsibly for verse 11, praising and giving thanks to Yahweh. And they say, for he is good. Just like we sort of prayed this morning at our prayer gathering. For he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. But the thing is, is all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. That's actually a really important section because it actually foreshadows what this whole book is going to be about. You have tons of anticipation that something amazing is about to happen. All of these promises that God has said, I'm going to bring you back. Looks like they're about to be fulfilled. And there's a lot of good stuff happening. But there's also a bit of a cloud hanging over the gathering as well. And so we keep going. It doesn't take long before there's some problems that show up because a good story always needs some conflict. Um, we have the, the intro to a, a conflict that's actually going to show up very and be very important in, um, in the Gospels. And it, it's a group of people that the Gospels call Samaritans. Now, if there's actually some backstory to these people. If you, if you jump back, don't have to jump back to there, but I'm going to just read sort of who, the backstory of these people in 2 Kings 17. So there, when the king of Assyria first takes out the northern kingdom of Israel, he, repop, he resettles it, brings all these people from the northern king, kingdoms. They come, they live there. And uh, turns out they have a lion problem. Um, legit, like lions are like eating people. And so and it's, it's like a real, yeah, this is becoming a public political issue. Now we need to make a how to deal with lions committee. So they, they make one, they, they call, they're like, Oh, we need a priest. We need somebody to teach them about the God of the land so that he, the God can like stop making these lions eat people. So they bring this priest. Um, he comes to Bethel, teaches people how they should fear the Lord. But then this is what second King 17 says, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benot. The men of Kuth made Nurgal. The men of Hamat made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramalech and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also, so they're doing all that stuff, which is gross and horrible. 
They also feared Yahweh and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared Yahweh, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner. So that's the sort of the perspective you're supposed to be walking in. When these guys show up, these people from the land, they're like, they, they say this in chapter Ezra 4. They say, hey, well, Ezra 4, they say, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And if you've read Second Kings, you're going, uh, not sure about that. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esar Hadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So that actually becomes the running conflict, essentially through Ezra Nehemiah. There's conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaritans have, they keep writing letters, essentially to the big head honchos of the government. And they're basically like, these people are applying to overthrow the government. They're going to stop paying taxes to you. Like, you should really not let this building thing go forward. And for a while it works um, until there's a couple prophets that God raises up, Haggai and Zechariah. I don't know if you remember, we did a series in Haggai actually like, I don't know, maybe half a year ago or so. So if you're curious about what happened there, I would check, encourage you to check out that series or go look at the book. But these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they encourage the people to start building again when it seems like a, there's a new king that's coming to power. That seems to work. And God, he supports it. They get the temple finished. Um, and so when we jump to Ezra chapter 6, um, they end up actually celebrating the Passover, which is really amazing. It's a big ideal, big win. So that's sort of the first wave of coming back. Uh, there's two more waves before we get to the end of Nehemiah. Second wave, Ezra himself, who, I mean, the book's named after, but he hasn't showed up yet. He shows up. He has a very specific mission. His mission is actually, again, from the Persian emperor. He's like, go and teach the people how to obey the law. That's Ezra 7. Ezra's like, great. Sounds good. Ezra's like, he's a biblical scholar. He knows his stuff. And only that, he brings a fat check with him. So he's got all this resources, all of this trained help to come and teach the people how to, how to worship God. Shows up. There's a massive problem. Again, Conflict number two. Um, first conflict is very external. This one is very internal. The problem is, is that in Ezra 9, we find out that uh, Ezra shows up. He's like, he's going to teach the people. He says, after these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief man has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, this is Ezra talking, I tore my garment 
in my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to Yahweh, my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. As it was like, there was a CN, like our, our iniquities, if you could stack them up, if there were things you could stack, they'd be like higher than the CN Tower. He's like, we're an absolute mess. And the reason he's reacting this way, he basically, he does almost what in their culture is like funeral moves. Like we, in our culture, we often wear black. Um, he basically, he, you know, you, you heard it. He rips his clothes, rips his hair out. He's absolutely wrecked over this. The reason is, is because this, this intermarriage, this between uh, the Jews who live in, who are, have now moved to Israel and the, the people who live there, the big thing for God is that this is an this is an interreligious marriage. This is a this is a marriage between true worship, actual knowing the real God, and false worship, which in the in the biblical worldview always winds up in injustice. Now, the thing is too though, is that there's also some concern that the people bring out that there's some that there's there's actually potentially an interracial problem with this. Now the, the thing, though, is if you look at some of the other contexts of the Bible, it's, it's not clear that the problem itself is actually the, the, the race issue, the intermarriage racially. Because, especially because in chapter 6, uh, all of the people from the lands who actually ditch their pagan worship can join in the Passover, just like the first Passover. Um, because if you go back to Exodus, you find out that there's lots of people who actually leave Egypt with Israel if they're um, willing to devote to, to Yahweh. So um, there's, there's some really good things that, that Ezra's really concerned about, but the, the reaction actually becomes almost kind of ambiguous because there's this dude, there's a bunch of people who hear Ezra praying, hear him confessing this sin um, of inter, inter-religious marriage, and they're convicted. They hear the story, they hear what, how broken, they see how broken Ezra is, and it kindles something, that, that grief and that remorse, that mourning in their own hearts. And this one guy, I think his name's Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel. Um, again, say, say that five times fast. Um, he, he recognizes this and he's like, this is a disaster. He's like, so what we should do? We should do a mass divorce. And we're going, uh, are you sure that's a really mass divorce? And, and the funny thing is, is if you look at the passage, it feels kind of ambiguous. Essentially, the, the way Ezra ends is as a mass, it's like some 200, 300 names of people who had intermarried with peoples of the land having a divorce. And the last line is, and all these married foreign, all these people, this big list of guys had married foreign women. Some of the women had even born children. And this whole divorce proceeding happens in mass, um, during a massive rainstorm. So it's like dark, moody, grief. The whole thing is just really, really tragic. And, and the last line is about the kids. And you're going, and the Bible doesn't, God doesn't say, great job, guys. There's no prophet that shows up and says, awesome job. You're just sort of going, the real problem, but is that the solution? And that's how Ezra ends. It's a weird way to end a book. 
Nehemiah kickstart. Now we switch all the way back to Persia. Um, Nehemiah is this high government uh, official. Um, he's called a cupbearer. Now, if you know what a cupbearer is, it's generally somebody who's responsible to give the king his drink. So you're like, wait, he's got a guy to do that? Like, that's kind of tedious. But part of that is a security issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Part of it's a security issue. But the thing is, he clearly does more than just serve drinks because you're going to see all that he gets done when he actually winds up in Jerusalem. He's a high level government official. He hears about how, how wrecked the walls of Jerusalem are. This, the temple's built, the altar's built, that worship thing is kind of functioning, but the city itself is vulnerable. So Nehemiah is like, this is a, this is a terrible thing. I'm going to ask the king of Persia to go back and help and rebuild the city. Um, king of Persia gives him permission, doesn't give him the same financial support as the last two waves, but still good. We're on to wave three. So Nehemiah brings a bunch, bunch of people back. Or sorry, yeah, I guess wave three. Um, trying to keep my place uh nehemiah brings a bunch of people back they start building again now we have another conflict it's the samaritans again so they show up this guy named tobiah the ammonite and sanballat the horonite they show up they make tons of trouble for nehemiah they're like they're after him after him they're making fun of him they're like uh, again doing the smear campaign thing we're gonna write to the king and say that you're gonna rebel and nehemiah's like Enough of you. I have work to do. That's effectively his response every time. Um, and he trusts God. So he, uh, he's going on with building stuff, comes into a problem. Now there's another internal problem. And we're in Nehemiah chapter 5. Internal problem is that while he's trying to build this city, the Jews are basically forcing each other into debt slavery. And you're like, wait, what? Like, what's going on? Like, why are you... Why are you treating, why are you have this weird relationship with money? First, it was like sex and religion. Now it's like all this money stuff. You're oppressing people who are your brothers and sisters. Nehemiah's like, you guys got to stop, sort it out. Okay, we think we're good. We're like, there's a lot of problems so far. We think we're good. More problems with the Samaritans. Um, they sort of keep trying to sort that out. Um, and finally, he gets the, the wall built by chapter six. And then they have this big celebration. They celebrate the Feast of Booths this time, which is, you can go read about that in Leviticus and Numbers. Um, and then they have this, they recount this big prayer in chapter nine um, of conviction. They recount the whole story of Israel, which I kind of told right at the beginning. And they remember God's faithfulness and their sin. And they just say, God, this is where we're at. Uh, verse, verse nine says, behold, like in light of all of this faithfulness, you brought us back to this land. Verse not, chapter 9, verse 36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we're in great distress. And because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So now you have this big covenant that they write, and they basically decide to do four things. They basically make a covenant on top of the Mosaic covenant. They're like, we're going to make a promise to keep the promise. Um, lots of covenants. Sure, this will work. Um, <laughs> even though it hasn't worked so far. Um, they promise not to intermarry with the people of the land. They promise not to work on the Sabbath, which is a thing that's been happening, which is another big part of faith for them. And they promised to financially support the temple and its staff. So they promised to essentially tithe. And then they have a big party. <laughs> Chapter 12 is this massive celebration. They dedicate the walls. It's a big celebration. They're really excited, really stoked. And then you hit chapter 13. 
chapter 13, again, this whole joy, weeping sort of thing that I told you about at the very beginning, this really comes out in chapter 13. Nehemiah ends up going away for a little while. He comes back. And it turns out that while he's been gone, the people have broken literally every single one of the things that they promised to do in this covenant on top of a covenant. And he, that includes, he basically finds out that they've made a a room inside the temple for Tobiah, who's like one of his arch enemies. They've like made him like a, a, uh, like a stay, stay in suite for in the temple for Tobiah, where all of the resources for the Levites is supposed to go. He gets mad, basically goes in, grabs the furniture and chucks it out of the the temple. He's really mad. He's basically angry this entire chapter. Um, he finds that people have, uh, they're not tithing. So the Levites have stopped doing the temple worship because they have to go back to their fields in order to, to provide for their families. He's like, this is a mess. So he gets, the, he forces that back into gear. They find that he finds that, that everybody's trading on the Sabbath. So he shuts the gates and says, no, you can't come in on the Sabbath. He finds that the people are intermarrying again. And he's like, and not only that, but one of the chief priests is married into the family of Sanballat, who's his other arch enemy. It's an absolute mess. And so the last, the last line of Nehemiah is, he says, thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And it's like, wow, wow. <laughs> you know? And you're like, what is this people's problem? Why can't they get it right? Even after going to exile, they come back, the whole thing's a mess. It's like, yeah, you got the temple built. Yeah, you got the wall built. And the city's kind of functioning again. But there's this problem with inconsistency and lack of focus and unfaithfulness. And when... We, we basically look at the end. We see that Israel is still cheating on God. If the covenant that God makes with his people is like a marriage, Israel's been cheating on him the entire marriage. And then he, when he brings her out of slavery, which is the consequences of her, <laughs> her cheating, she still is cheating. And we go like, what? how is this going to be fixed? Now, if you, if you listen, if you think about the story that I just told, there's two things that are glaringly missing in the whole story. One is when they dedicate the temple, unlike when Solomon dedicates his temple, and when the, when the tent of meeting gets dedicated right at the end of Exodus, the glory of God does not show up in power and fill the space so that they can't go in. That doesn't happen in Nehemiah or Ezra. Not only that, Zerubbabel, I mean, he's the son of David, but he's not the king. And so what Israel is looking for is a king who will come in, who will enforce justice. He will say, you know, this is the right things get done. Evil people get stopped. That's what Israel is looking for. They need somebody who will help them do that according to God's way and God's law. But they also need the spirit. Moses has this great dream um, earlier in the Torah. He, uh, when he brings people up on this mountain, he brings the, the elders of Israel up on this mountain. The spirit comes on, they all start prophesying. And there's a couple guys who actually start prophesying in the camp. They're not even on the mountain. And Joshua finds out about it. And he's like, Moses, there's these guys. They have the spirit. They're like prophesying. Aren't you going to do something about it? And Moses is like, dude, I wish the whole people of Israel was, were like that. And right there, right there, right at the beginning 
of the story, we had this dream that everyone would be filled with the Spirit of God. So the law of God would not just be external to them, over them, but would come inside them and change them from the inside out. And so that's where, we're, where, we're, where we are in the very door, doorstep of the New Testament. This is the situation that Jesus shows up into. Jewish-Samaritan conflict. Israel's ruled by overlords, and there's a lot of inconsistency. And Jesus comes, and the promise that you learn right at the beginning of the Gospels is that Jesus is going to, John Baptist tells you, Jesus is going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be the king who's going to fill us with the Spirit. So, there's a main takeaway as we, we finish out. Israel has a worship problem. They've had a worship problem this entire this entire story. And, and the thing is, is, it's not that they're not worshiping Yahweh. It's that they're worshiping a lot of other things at the same time. And while we have the king, we have Jesus, we have the king that they were waiting for, we have the spirit that was promised, we have the same problem. And so I wanted to give you an analogy to, to help you think about and help you understand. Hopefully this is accurate. Check this with your Bible. And the analogy is with a Brita filter. So when something's holy, oftentimes when we use the language of holiness, we think, we think that holiness is about being moral, usually, which is truth, it's involved, and being separate. And you think that makes sense, some sense, too, because you kind of see how that's an emphasis, even in the story, that Israel needs to be separate from things that are evil and dark and, and idolatrous. But the thing is, is sometimes if we just think about separateness or we just think about morality, I don't think we actually get the whole picture of what the Bible means by holiness. Um, and, and I would say that holiness, the way that the Bible talks about holiness, especially when you, I mean, even with objects that would be used in the temple, like something like a Brita filter that you would pour stuff with, that's a holy object. That You'll see this, this kind of language in Leviticus if you spend any time there, which I know it's hard to spend time there, but you should still do it. Um, <laughs> So when something is holy, it means it's been devoted. It's been focused for something. It's been designated for a particular task. See, this Brita filter, what it's for is for drinking water. You know, it's not for anything else. Okay. So if I take this Brita filter and I say, this is Ryan's Brita filter or the Waypoint Brita filter, I've devoted this to myself for a particular task. That's what it's for. It's for drinking water. Now, what happens if I pee in it? It's gross, right? Is it still for drinking water? Ah, there you go. There you go. I got you. Okay? Not, not as it is. Yeah, not as it is. It needs to be cleaned out. But it's still been devoted. And so, and so essentially what needs to happen is, is we need this. And even with a Brita filter, you use it enough and it gets filled with gunk and it needs to be cleaned out. It's sort of just the regular process of having a Brita filter. And when, when we worship, what worship is supposed to be is that we are supposed to have the pure water of the Holy Spirit filling our lives. So it's poured in and then poured out so that we can give to God and to other people. That's what worship is supposed to be. It's trusting God, coming to him and saying, I need you to fill me. I need you to fill me with your life and your Holy Spirit. So I can be faithful to you and I can trust you. And he loves that. But the thing is also, it's to be focused for water. It's supposed to be for God. It's not for other things. 
It's not for being in, you know? And so that, that's the ideal. And, and the thing is, is what motivates that, guys, is the faithfulness of the king. When we know that he really will be the one to give us the living water. To give us the thing that we need to satisfy our deepest longings and, and desires for the, for the transcendent goodness of God. For his steadfast love to endure forever. When we see that, when we see that in Jesus, and we see that in Ezra and Nehemiah, because even where you see the unfaithfulness of the people, you also see what happens in God blessing and taking care of Nehemiah and all of his hard work and all of the people trying to attack him, get after him, stop things. God's faithful to him. And Jesus is faithful to us. And when we recognize that, when we realize that we're like, you are the one who's going to fill me with the water of life who's going to purify me, who's, who's died for my sins, who's devoted. See, the thing about this Brita filter analogy, I think it works well in another way, is like, even if a Brita filter gets filled with dirty stuff, it's still been devoted for a particular purpose. When God comes into your life, he sanctifies you. He says, you're mine. You belong to me. You've been devoted to me. And, and the thing is, is, he did that not because we were already clean, but be, and he... he comes in and he dies for our sins. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He cleans us out. So we have security in that relationship. The debt is paid. The relationship is solved. And it's from that security that we come and that we say, Jesus, I need you to clean me up again. I need you to help me with this focus. I need you to fill me up with life again. And we need that to be something that's holistic. So you guys, holy worship is holistic worship. Let me say that again. Holy worship, devoted worship is holistic worship. It goes into every area of our lives. That's what makes it holy. It's focused. It's, it's got integrity all the way through. It's only for, for God, not for, not for other idols. And yeah, I guess I just want to leave you some, with some questions like, do you find in yourself a desire for faithfulness? Like, do, you, do you actually want that? Jesus wants that for you. He wants to give himself to you. My question, I, I was thinking about this last night, and I was just like, man, how does, how does Jesus make us faithful? Sometimes when I have a question like that, I text a friend because, you know, call a friend. It's always a good idea, right? <laughs> um, so I texted my friend, Joel. Uh, some of you know him, may have known him. He shows up in the video and uh, in the We Are video. I was like, dude, how, did, how does Jesus make us faithful? And he said this. I just thought it was so good. He said, Jesus makes us faithful by writing his laws on our heart and by rewriting our imagination so that our perceptions and desires align with his. Jesus makes us faithful by writing his laws on our heart and by rewriting our imagination so that our perceptions and desires align with his. You see that right in Romans 12, where Paul says this, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, devoted, and acceptable to God because Jesus has paid for all of your sins, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's the renewal of your imagination, the way you see the world. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so that comes, guys, by by showing up, just like Jesus shows up for us. By doing things exactly like what we're doing this morning, by sacrificing the time you would spend on Sunday morning to be doing tons of other fun things. And showing up to be filled by God's spirit, to be with his people, to hear his word, to hear the Bible. It means making space for God in I mean, your quiet times, your devotional time. It means making space for God in your friendships. Do you talk about spiritual things with your friends? That's so important. It creates space for the Holy Spirit to work. He'll take that space um, because he's gracious a lot of the time. You go far enough from him, you're in a relationship with him, he'll come in and he'll invade. He'll take it. But he wants you to make that space to give that to him because he's giving. He's so willing to give to you. He's so willing to show up in support. And then I think just even in this place, in these gatherings, like to ask the Holy Spirit to show up, to make space to pray, come Holy Spirit, fill my life. I want to challenge you to do that. Because it would be amazing. It would be so amazing if we... Just think about what it would look like for us to be a community that's marked by consistency and coming back to God. Don't you want that? Don't you want to see that? I do. I want to see that in my life. It's hard to preach a sermon like this because you look at, you think about the topic of faithfulness and you're like, oh man, (laughs) so many ways, so many places in my life where I'm not consistent. So the only thing I know to do, guys, is to to remind us, we got to come back to the king who provides for us, we got to come back to his spirit who will fill us and change us from the inside out. Let me pray for us and then we'll be done. Father in heaven, um, thank you so much for this story. Thank you for the way that it challenges us. And thank you for your promises to us. Holy Spirit, we, we need you. It's not enough to make covenants on top of covenants. Um, those are good things, but if they're not ignited and, and helped by your Holy Spirit, they're not worth anything. We need you to kindle faith in us, to ch- kindle trust in us, to help us to see Jesus for who he is. Would you help us with that? Would you help us to lean on each other? Would you help us to function as a body who helps each other so that eyes help feet and arms help legs? And Father, would you help us to be separate from things that hate you? Would you help us to see the difference between good things and things that look harmless but that are actually detrimental and distracting? Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. We look forward to your King's coming again to reign on this earth even as he reigns from heaven. Would you bless his people now as we celebrate the rest of our Sunday in Jesus' name. Amen.